Have you ever heard this either uh, on Christian media or maybe even shared from a pulpit? Give your life to Jesus and all your problems are over. I wonder why we lie to people like that. I don't know about you, but the minute I gave my life to Jesus, well, my problems weren't over. It seemed in a lot of ways my problems had just begun, uh, at least in a different sort of way. Now, granted, giving your life to Jesus is going to solve some really significant problems in your life. For instance, you're no longer going to have to go through life bent over carrying a load of guilt anymore because he's washed your sins away. That's pretty neat. You'll never be lonely anymore because the friend who sticks closer than a brother has taken up residency within your heart through the Holy Spirit. That's a pretty big problem to be solved. You're not going to hell any longer if you've got nothing else to be thankful for. Think about that. Yeah, Jesus does solve some pretty big problems in our lives, but boy, oh boy, the minute you give your life to Jesus, there's a whole new set of problems that comes your way. You discover that there is a world system out there that is custom designed to take this little light of yours and it out. That's a problem. You discover that instead of just living for your lust and your temptations, you've got to fight them now and they don't go down without a struggle. That's a problem. You discover that just as God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, so there is a personal devil out there who hates you and wants to make wreck and ruin of your life. These are some significant problems. And there are some people, when they encounter these problems, they look at the Christian life and think, oh, I must be doing it wrong. Or maybe it's just not even true. In fact, I believe one of the fundamental mistakes that leads so many believers in Jesus onto the rocks spiritually is mistaking this world for a playground when it's really a battleground. Yeah, we are in a fight, gang. In fact, in the book of Ephesians, chapter 6 and verse 10, we read this, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles, the schemes, the strategies of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Now, notice Paul's advice about being in a spiritual battle. If you are in a spiritual war, you might as well be in it to win it. Big question. How do you pull that off? Well, this morning in Luke chapter 20, in a sense, we are going to go to boot camp this morning. You know, you've heard about these boot camp workouts that are popular these days. We are going to have a boot camp workout with no less a drill instructor, a DI, than Jesus himself. And as we take a look at how Jesus fought the good fight, we'll learn a thing or two about how to become more successful when we find ourselves in a pitched battle against the world, the flesh, and the devil, because it is coming your way. 
Now, if you were with us in our study in the book of Luke last time, a couple weeks ago, thanks to Peter Martin for filling in and teaching through the Song of Solomon. One thing to go out of town, but when you find out your assistant pastor's teaching Song of Solomon, boy, you really tune in online. <laughs> Did a wonderful job, and we really appreciate that. But a couple weeks ago, uh, we got into Luke chapter 20, and as you know, the setting for Luke chapter 20 is this is Jesus' final week before he is crucified. Uh, the shadow of the cross is looming larger and larger on Jesus' personal horizon. And the opposition to Jesus is increasing by leaps and bounds, precipitated by a very interesting event. In Luke chapter 20 and verse 1, we pick things up. It says, Now it happened on one of those days as he taught people in the temple and preached the gospel that the chief priests and scribes together with the elders confronted him and spoke to him saying, tell us by what authority are you doing these things or who is he who gave you this authority? One of the first interesting insights into spiritual battle here that Jesus models for us is his confrontation with the spiritual powers that be. What created what caused this confrontation? Sometimes we think that Jesus was just there in Jerusalem teaching a Bible study, minding his own business, when these evil people from straight from central casting, looking more like snidely whiplash from the old, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, Rocky and Bullwinkle show, than anything else, come on the scene and they're just looking for any excuse to, to trample on Jesus. No. These people have definitely had an ox gourd here. What has led into this? Jesus has precipitated this confrontation by taking the initiative in a very powerful way. Luke chapter 19 says, He came into the temple of God, saw the money changers, those who would change out uh, supposedly defiled Roman coinage with graven images like Caesar on it for the temple shekel, who would sell sacrifices for people to offer that were sure not to be defiled. They'd been inspected and with the little, well, care and handling fee attached. Oh, man, I'll tell you, uh, there's an awful lot of money to be made in religion if you get over the hurdle of having no ethics. And Jesus came, and he cleaned house. He turned over their tables. He made a uh, whip out of some cords and drove them literally out of the temple. By the way, that wasn't the first time Jesus did this. This is the second time that Jesus has done, had done this. He did it at the beginning of his ministry in John chapter 2, and it apparently didn't take because they were back doing their old same thing again, and Jesus very patiently did the same thing. He cast them out, and he quoted two really interesting scriptures to justify what he was doing. Isaiah chapter 56 and verse 7, my house shall be a place of prayer for all nations. And Jeremiah chapter 7 and verse 11, which says, but you have turned it into a den of thieves. Now, both of those scriptures really significant because the idea of the house of God being a place of prayer for many nations where were the uh, money changers and the sacrifice sellers setting up their goods? In a place called the Court of the Gentiles, the, the, the farthest ring outside of the temple, the closest place that any non-Jew could ever get to being close to the temple. Boy, they meant business on this. 
They've excavated these pillars that used to guard this boundary between the court of the Gentiles and the court of the women, the next ring inside, that said, if anyone violates this boundary and is a Gentile, they will only have to blame themselves for the death with which they will die. (laughs) They're like, keep out, that means you. But if you were, say, like the Ethiopian official that Philip met in the book of Acts, a Gentile who was really interested in this God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the closest you could get was this place on the outside looking in. What had they done to it? They, they had used it essentially to show the worst of religion rather than a relationship with God. And instead of being a place of outreach, a place of love, a place of truth, a place of purity and integrity, well, it had become the exact opposite. And Jesus wasn't going to tolerate it. Now, how did this uh, place get into this dire set of circumstances? Well, remember who's running the temple at this point. There were the Sadducees. It was a sect of Judaism that was, well, culturally Jewish, spiritually, eh, not so much. They didn't believe in an afterlife. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in miracles. They didn't really even believe that Messiah would return, or if he did, he would just be a political ruler who'd pat them on the back for what they were already doing. And, and so, because these individuals were no longer looking for the coming of Messiah, well, there was something that filled the void. Corruption, playing fast and loose with people's spiritual sensibilities, exploiting people rather than exhorting or, or edifying people in their walk with God. And boy, the, the same has always been true. You get your eyes off of what the Bible calls the blessed hope and get ready for corruption to set up shop in your own heart, in your own life. What's, what's possible, gang, for groups, what's possible historically is also very possible for you and for me. And, and when I, I uh, you know, am around, I guess you could call it in medical terms, a post-mortem uh, for people that walked with the Lord and then are no longer walking with the Lord. They call them ex-evangelicals these days. They put the highfalutin term, I've deconstructed my faith these days. One of the first dead giveaways that you're on that road to ruin is that you get your eyes off the possibility that Jesus could come at any moment. You start living for this world instead of the coming of Jesus Christ. And in the book of Titus, chapter 2, beginning at verse 9, the Apostle Paul said this, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age. And what's the driving motivation? Looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ who gave himself for us, that he might purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. He might redeem us from every lawless deed. Now notice, hand in hand with the anticipation of the Lord's return is a sense of walking your talk, of lessening the distance between what we say we believe and how we actually live. If you don't believe that Jesus could come at any moment, Matthew chapter 24, Jesus warned about an unfaithful servant who says, my master delays his coming and begins abusing the people all around him. Well, if you get your eyes off the return of Jesus, these things are going to become a reality within your life. Maybe subtly, maybe once and all together, you know, a spiritual collapse 
uh, has been described as happening gradually and then all at once. But chances are it began when you got your eyes off the Messiah and got your eyes on the here and now. It happened then. It's happening now. Now, <laughs> these scribes, uh, the uh, temple officials, essentially came to Jesus and said, who gave you the authority to do that? Who do you think you are? Well, get the message from last week. We talked about how uh, this shouldn't have surprised them. In Malachi chapter 3, we are told that when Messiah would come to Israel, he would come to his temple and he would clear it out. Who can endure the day of his coming? Malachi prophesied there. He was going to purify the priests and the Levites. In other words, there were going to be some priests and Levites that needed purifying, and Jesus fulfills all of that. And so they, they basically asked that time-honored question, who do you think you are who gave you the right to do these sort of things? And by the way, culty groups are always all over authority. We have authority. We have this connection. We have this anointing, and so on. If someone is kind of leading with it, you need to listen to me because I've got the inside ticket with God, or I've jumped through the right spiritual hoops, or Lord help you, you've got the right initials after your name because you've gone to some school, and I've got some of those initials. I can speak honestly about it. If someone has to tell you, you need to listen to me because of X and such, you know, you've already kind of lost the argument, in a sense. Why should you listen to anybody spiritually? It should be because they have a walk with God. You look at it and you'd like to emulate that. You'd like to walk with the Lord like they do. That's what real authority is all about. But these guys weren't about all of that. They were all about wearing the right clothes and having the right robes and having the right titles and knowing the right people and sitting in the right places at the services and so on. It's all about externals instead of internals. But Jesus turned the table on him. Verse 3, he said, But he answered and said to them, I will also ask you one thing and answer me. The baptism of John, was it from heaven or from men? And they reasoned among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why did you not believe him? But if we say from men, all the people will stone us, for they are persuaded that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it was from. And Jesus said, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Now, here we see an example of what our good friend Gail Irwin called in his classic book, the Jesus style. How did Jesus share with people? Unlike, well, some people we could mention here in this room today, he didn't download for 45 minutes in a sermon. Instead, Jesus knew how to get to the hearts of people. And one of the greatest ways, most effective ways to get to the hearts of people is through their minds. How do you get to people's minds? You don't lecture, you ask a question. You know, in uh, law school, they call this learning the Socratic method. The Socratic method was named after the philosopher Socrates. And Socrates was very famous for gathering people together and teaching by asking questions. Because as you ask questions, people have to think. Henry Ford once said that thinking is one of the most difficult things we as human beings have to do. That's why so few people actually do it. We don't like to think. We like to just have our convictions spoon-fed to us. You know, we just like to assume that these experts and these authorities know what they're talking about. We don't ask questions because, as the old Russian proverb puts it, the nail that sticks up is the one that gets hammered down. Be a sheeple, you know, go with the flock. 
be a lemming. You know, the view never changes, and who knows, you're going to run over a cliff, but at least you've got company along the way. Jesus never went for that. He asked people questions. You know, the funny thing about the Socratic method, getting people to think about their own convictions by asking them pointed questions. You know what got Socrates? They got so irritated with him, they fed him poison hemlock and killed him. Well, Jesus does the same thing. He asks them a question. Ministry of John the Baptist, where did it come from? From God or from men? And you see, with a simple question, he got right through to the heart. You see, the important thing we need to understand about our walk with God and about being a witness for Jesus is this, and we really need to be careful about this. I know I need to be careful about it personally as a recovering adult child of an attorney. The goal of sharing our faith isn't to win an argument. It's to touch a heart. And there's a big difference between those two things. Now, granted, we should know what we believe and why we believe it. We need to give a reason for the hope that is within us with meekness and reverence, as the Bible tells us. But, you know, there's an old proverb. uh, Again, a man convinced against his will is of the same opinion still. You know, you can answer all the questions, but unless the heart gets touched, you're spinning your wheels. And that's what Jesus was all about here. He wanted them to see the insane path that they had taken. Now, when we look at this, when we look at Jesus, again, as our DI, our drill instructor, right, in a spiritual conflict, a couple of really important truths come to the forefront. Number one, why was Jesus in this conflict in the first place? It wasn't because he was playing defense. You see, too often we think of the Christian life as playing defense. We hunker down and hope we can hang on to our faith till the Lord comes. You know, we, we don't really like to engage. We really don't like to get out there. We really don't want people to know we're Christians because once they know we're born-again Christians or we go to church, boy, they're going to have questions. And, you know, I really just do, I'm not really comfortable with all of this. You know, that's plain defense. Yeah, a famous scripture. Maybe you've heard it a bazillion times before. I, I certainly have. Matthew chapter 16 and verse 18. Jesus said to Simon Peter, You are Peter, and upon this rock, I will build my church. The rock being referred to was Peter's confession of faith in Jesus, that he was the Son of God. And he said, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Now, uh, you know, we tend to think of that like, well, you know, Satan's going to attack me, but, uh, but, uh, you know, he's not going to prevail. No, understand, Jesus used the term the gates of hell. He didn't say the chariots of hell. He didn't say the infantry of hell. He didn't say the airborne of hell are going to come against you. He said the gates of hell. Why does he say that? Because we are to be on the offensive. In that day and age, the age of walled cities, kind of like gated communities in our day and age, there was one way in and one way out, through the gates. And if you got through the gates, there was big trouble. So they would design these gates in an interesting way. We think about the gates of a city, we think of these big arches and kind of freeway-like entries and exits. But uh, when you go to Israel and you see the way ancient gates were put together, they were put together in a way that if you were going to come into a city, you would walk into one part of the gate. You really see this at a site called Tel Dan there in Israel. You walk into one part of the gate, then you have to go like this for about another three feet, and then there's another wall, and then you've got to go like this. And I mean, it's this really narrow, zigzaggy thing. Why? Because if you're coming in and you're trying to invade that city, first of all, you can't get all your troops through at once. 
this narrow zigzaggy path. Secondly, once you're in that narrow zigzaggy path, all you have to do is be on the top and you can just pick them off one at a time as they come on in. If you're going to conquer a city, you got to get through the gates. Now, what Jesus is saying is this, the gates of hell are stationary. We need to be on the offensive. We shouldn't be on the defensive. You know, I've watched too many ball games where I was probably overly emotionally invested, where my team was ahead. They were ahead going into the fourth quarter with 10 minutes left. And then coaches do what they always do. They put in the prevent defense. In other words, everything that got them the lead, they throw aside. They go, oh, no, we just don't want to screw up. We're going to play not to lose instead of to win. I discovered something about the prevent defense. All it does is prevent victory because the momentum switches, right? The other team gets confident. They start moving the ball, and before too long, that lead evaporates. And I've seen too many examples of this to, uh, to number. It just breaks my heart. And go, oh, there they go again. It's the prevent defense. You see, we as Christians think we're playing prevent defense. We think if I just kind of hang out with my Christian friends and, you know, here in the friendly confines of church and, you know, if, if I just stay away from all those worldly people out there and, you know, sort of hold on until Jesus gets here, I'm doing what God wants you to do. That's wrong. God wants you to be on offense. What do I mean by being on offense? He does, not being offensive, right? Uh, some of you don't need any help or encouragement along that line. But what I mean by being on offense is this, and it's just this simple. You know, we are called to be witnesses for the Lord. And what a powerful thing it is when we wake up in the morning and before you have that first cup of coffee, before, you know, you put the snooze on for three or four times before you can work with the motive for getting up there, just pray this prayer. Lord, what are you up to today? I want to be a part of it. Do you have somebody I can share with today? Bring someone across my path that doesn't know you, where, where I can demonstrate with my life the difference that Jesus makes, where, where maybe a person who's fearful about all the things they see in the news these days, they can see some strength and some stability there. Bring a person who's lonely, and may your love just flow through me. Give me the words to say, Lord, to tell people about you in this world. Because I guarantee you, that's why you're still here. You have people that you can reach and touch with the love of Jesus that I'll never be able to reach and tell you. Oh, you're a pastor. You get paid to be spiritual. Why should I listen to you? But they'll listen to you because you're not on the payroll. You're just sharing because you love Jesus. We all have people that we can reach and touch, and God has these wonderful divine appointments. And if the Christian life is boring to you so you can barely muster a yawn, if the exciting days in your walk with God are only seen through the rearview mirror of your life, may I encourage you, just pray that simple prayer. Lord, give me an opportunity today to share with someone who needs to know about you. And you know where you're going to find yourself? Assaulting the gates of hell. Because Satan doesn't want anyone to go to heaven, and he wants to keep these lost people lost. Jesus went on the offensive, and I think that's a really important thing for us to keep in mind. The other thing is this. You know, if you want to be successful in a spiritual war, follow Jesus' example. This is exactly what he did. Again, taking the initiative, letting the light shine, asking 
heart-to-heart questions. Not just getting involved with, with the rabbit trail discussions, but getting down to the issues of the heart. Making people think about where they stand with God, what they're living for, what is their hope beyond the icy grave. Get people to think about these things and let them know that, that there is a God who walked among us in the person of Jesus who's answered these big questions of life. Maybe, just maybe, they'll get curious and start looking into things. But follow Jesus' example. You know, uh, I've, I've been watching, uh, re-watching again with my son Sean that series that HBO put out called Band of Brothers. It tells the story of the Airborne Rangers of Easy Company in World War II. One of the fascinating things about this series is before the drama gets going, uh, they have actual clips of survivors from World War II who were part of the Airborne Rangers. And they get their comments, their takes on different things. And one of the most fascinating statements that I think I've seen in this series is this one guy was asked, why in the world would you join Airborne? I mean, you want to talk about setting yourself up for disaster, right? You not only have to go (laughs) into France, right, in the invasion of France, you don't get to go ashore in an aircraft carrier. you got to jump out of an airplane. you got to jump out of an airplane while the enemy is shooting at you, for goodness sake. Why in the world would you join Airborne when the training was tougher, uh, the assignments were far more dangerous? Well, this one guy said, I figured something out. If I was going to be in a war, I'd have to share a foxhole with somebody someday. And I figured out that by joining Airborne, chances are the guy I was in the foxhole with would really know their stuff. And I'd have a far better chance of surviving if I shared that foxhole with someone who knew what he was doing than some draftee who was clueless. Well, that makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? Who are you sharing a foxhole with these days, spiritually? Who are you taking your cues from as far as how you live your Christian life? Follow Jesus. Look at his example. What a powerful thing it is when we do. So Jesus demonstrates this, and then he takes it a step deeper. He not only shows us the initiative of spiritual warfare, he gives us a powerful illustration. Verse 9 says, Then he began to tell the people this parable. A certain man planted a vineyard, leased it to vine dressers, and went to a far country for a long time. Now, at vintage time, he sent a servant to the vine dressers that they might give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the vine dressers beat him and sent him away empty handed. Again, he sent another servant, and they beat him also and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty handed. And again, he sent a third, and they wounded him and also cast him out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him when they see him. But when the vine dressers saw him, they reasoned among themselves, saying, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, that the inheritance may be ours. So they cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, what will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those vine dressers and give the vineyard to others. And when they heard it, they said, Certainly not. Now, <laughs> understand what this parable is talking about here. This parable is an overview, not just of where Jesus was at that moment in history, but catch this. This is an overview of God's great work in this world. 
You want to find out what God is really up to in this world? It's all right here. Here we see God giving what he owns to someone else who essentially gets to work the land. They don't own the land. They're there at the behest and with the permission of the owner. (laughs) God owns this world, gang. We don't. This world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. Yeah. Yeah. You know, we think we own land. We don't own land. Are you kidding? We rent it. We borrow it. But sooner or later, God owns it. God owns this world. He is the owner of the vineyard. And notice when it's time for the crop to come in, he allows us to stay in this world because he wants us to bear good fruit, right? Jesus said, you know, that when the Holy Spirit's come upon you, you bear good fruit, and that fruit is going to remain as you abide in the living vine, Jesus. That's what he's looking for, the fruit of the Spirit, which is love and so forth. God expects that from his people. But when he comes to see that fruit, what happens? He sends messengers, and and they get treated shamefully. Well, this is, in essence, the Old Testament in a nutshell, right? Every time God wanted to reach out to the people of Israel with a prophet, you know, again, Stephen, when uh, he gave his masterful defense of the gospel in the book of Acts, asked these same religious leaders, which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? You know, there's an old saying. If you say the same sort of things that Jesus said to the same sort of people he said them to, you're going to get what he got. And so if you come sharing truth in this world, (laughs) I guarantee you, there are going to be people that don't like that. They're not only going to not join you, they're going to actively oppose you, sometimes even violently. And guess what? That hasn't stopped since Jesus came on the scene. That's still the truth in our day and age. But notice, after all these messengers come, the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him when they see him. When the vine dressers saw him, they reasoned among themselves, saying, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, that the inheritance may be ours. A couple things here. The son is referred to as the heir. Uh, I think they got that right. In Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 1, Jesus is called the heir of all things in his relationship with our Heavenly Father. That's definitely what's being referred to here. But there are some people, and i got to admit, for a long time, this was kind of a head-scratcher. What kind of a cockamamie scheme is this for taking over some property? You're going to kill the son of the owner? You don't think there's going to be consequences for that? This is like the Manson family running this vineyard or something? Well, I just never understood it. Until, you know, I did some digging, some research into this. Uh, Those of you who are involved with uh, real estate know a thing or two about a portion of the law called adverse possession. You know what adverse possession is all about? Squatter's rights. In other words, there are provisions in the law that if you come to a piece of land and you occupy it without the owner's permission, right, for a certain length of time, it varies from state to state, but in the time of Jesus, it was three years, and there was no response by the previous owner of the land it was yours. You could take over. You could inherit that land, if you will. So when these wicked vine dressers saw the heir coming, they saw the son coming, they went, oh, it's not the owner of the vineyard. Where's the owner? I bet he's dead. I know. Let's get rid of the son. 
Let's get rid of the air. Then nobody's going to get in the way of our adverse possession takeover of this land. And so they killed the son. Now, the, the response here, you know, what's going to happen? Well, there's going to be H-E double hockey sticks to pay, right, for something like this. And the people said, certainly not. That word in Greek literally means may it not even enter into the heart or mind of man to even consider such a thing. Why did they have such a strong reaction? You can look this up on your own time. But in Isaiah chapter 5, which they all knew very well, Israel was referred to as the vineyard of the Lord. In fact, Isaiah chapter 5 and verse 7 says this, For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant plant. He looked for justice, but behold, oppression, for righteousness, but behold, a cry for help. They knew what Jesus was talking about here. Isaiah 5 applies to me. You know, you ever had the little moments say, why, it would really be great to have my name mentioned in the Bible. Be careful. You don't want certain parts of the Bible to apply to you, right? This one did, and it stung. It hurt them because they realized that it was probably all too true. So Jesus paints this illustration, this picture, it tells us a couple of things. First of all, God's incredibly patient. Notice this landowner sent servant after servant, even after seeing them treated shamefully and beaten and even killed. He keeps reaching out. Why is God so patient? Why doesn't he just come back and straighten out this world? I'll tell you why. If God were to eliminate all evil from planet Earth at midnight tonight, like some will say, oh, God's real, he'd do that. How many of us would still be around at 12.01 to talk about it? 2 Peter chapter 3 and verses 9 and 10 says, For God is not slack concerning his promises, some count slackness, but is patient towards you, not willing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Why hasn't Jesus straightened out this world yet? Because there's a rescue mission going on. He's reaching out to any who will turn and trust in him. Secondly, God's present with us. Notice the air here. Jesus is the air mentioned here, and God is so interested in us knowing his truth, he delivered it personally so we'd have no mistakes, no confusion. He ratified the fact that Jesus has told us the truth about life, about death, about the afterlife by raising his son from the dead in a moment of history. It takes all the guesswork out of things, doesn't it? God's present with us, but also God is perfect. You know, God cleaned house at the temple. The Pharisees and the Sadducees, in a sense, was squat, were squatters. The air was going to evict them. They were on borrowed time. You know, it's a picture not just of the time of Jesus, but all of human history God sent messengers that were rejected. The Messiah came and he was killed. And guess what? Judgment's coming. You're either going to get right, or as they say, you're going to get left. Now, <laughs> when you drop a heavy truth bomb like that, inevitably, someone's going to say, oh, yeah? Says who? 
Who are you to tell me that? That's really heavy, and I don't like that. And, you know, I mean, you're no great shakes either, and, and let's change the subject. Certainly not, they said. And they looked at them and said, what then is this that is written? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Whoever falls on that stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls, it will grind him into powder. Whoa. And the chief priests and the scribes that very hour sought to lay hands on him, but they feared the people. Why? For they knew he had spoken this parable against them. You see, they thought they had made up their minds about Jesus. But Jesus was making up his mind about them. There's people these days who seem to be sitting in the judgment seat about God. Well, if I were God, I'd do this. Or if God was really real, why doesn't he do that? You ever hear people say things like that? And you can say things like that. It's a free country. But understand something. God's listening. And one day, we will be brought to account for every idle word we speak. Some people will say, well, when I stand before the Lord, I'm going to give him a piece of my mind. Oh, no, you won't. Notice, who are you to say this? You know, the old movie line, hey, that's just your opinion, man. No, Jesus said, no, it's not my opinion. It's prophecy. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Psalm 118, verse 22. They were singing this, by the way, at Passover. They didn't even know what they were singing. Jesus said, this is what you're singing about. I'm the cornerstone. You've rejected it. But for those who receive it, obviously, the cornerstone, Jesus, is the chief cornerstone of their lives. Is that who Jesus is to you? We live in shaky times, don't we? We live in times where fear instead of faith and and a lack of confidence and questions about the future are rampant. It's robbing people of their physical, mental, and emotional health. Do you stand on the rock of Jesus and his promise, I will never leave you and never forsake you? You don't have to be another one of the lemmings heading over the cliff. You can stand on that rock, but if you refuse to stand on that rock, that rock's going to stand on you. And its effect is going to be powerful. You see, all of us come face to face with that rock. Where will we be? We'll be standing on the rock? Or we allow that truth of the rock to grind us into powder? It's going to be one way or the other. That's the fork in the road. You know, Deuteronomy chapter 30 and verse 19, God says this. See, I've set before you life and death, blessing and and the curse. Choose life that you may live, that you may love the Lord your God, for he is your blessing and your length of days. Where do you stand today? Lord, thank you so much that when you call us to be witnesses in this world, you don't just talk theoretically You demonstrated what that means practically and personally. And boy, this is a tough boot camp for us to get through. But we thank you, Lord, that just like any good drill instructor, any good pastor, any good teacher, you showed us that you were never willing to ask us to do something that you weren't willing to do yourself. And Lord, I thank you that we can look unto you, Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, as that perfect example 
What would Jesus do? What would Jesus think? What would Jesus say? How would Jesus feel? Lord, give us the wisdom to have those sort of questions running through our mind as we face the challenges of this life. And Father, what a powerful thing it would be in this city, in this place, in this church, if all of us just decided that tomorrow morning, before another day gets going, before another day is invested in a lot of things that really don't amount to a hill of beans, we would simply pray that prayer. Lord, what are you up to today? I want to be a part of it. Bring someone across my path who needs to see your truth or hear your truth and help me be prepared not to be about my things or what's good for me in a moment, but care so much about the eternal destinies of women, women and men being decided each and every day that I'm a part of your airborne rangers behind enemy lines knowing that you're right there in the foxhole with me. What a powerful, powerful prayer that would be, and what a powerful impact we could make with our lives individually if we took that seriously. Write that truth in our heart. Help us not to have Monday morning amnesia about this. Let it change our lives, Lord. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.